Good morning, Downtown Community Church. How are you all doing this morning? You don't have to answer. That's an awkward thing for me to do. Um, (laughs) Pastor Ben got the opportunity to grab his wife and children and get out of town for the holidays. So he asked for me to speak this morning, uh, and we are going through... Jesus in the Old Testament, or it's a bunch of letters, I don't remember exactly, chasing the LT, that's what it's called. Um, It's exciting, I love the Old Testament, I know you can see how thrilled I am. If you will stand with me as we read God's word together, we'll be in Numbers chapter 21 this morning. Moses writes in Numbers 21 verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Thank you very much. You guys can sit down. Um, So I am, I love the Old Testament. The reason I love the Old Testament, it's mostly, it's two-thirds of your Bible, so you have to. Uh, The Old Testament is so cool because it's just a bunch of people, it's a bunch of narratives of people making mistakes all the time. It's, It's, as God's people, you know, God's people start off in a very, it's like two of them, and then it grows and grows and grows, and they just don't know very much about God. God reveals himself more and more over time. Uh, they make tons of mistakes. Even the great heroes of the faith uh, are all just kind of boneheads sometimes. Uh, and so you see this great group of people here, like, I can get on board with that, right? Like, I understand that. I understand being, you know, just not very intelligent a lot of times. Um, in fact, the Old Testament is, is an incredibly important thing. I, I always want to say that Jesus quotes the Old Testament more than he quotes the New Testament, but that's a moronic thing to say because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Um, but Jesus does quote the Old Testament a ton, and he t- uh, most of his authority in his teaching comes from the Old Testament. Specifically, uh, it comes from Moses, which is who we'll talk about today. We'll talk about the law, specifically. Uh, but when we talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, this, this whole theme that we've kind of been going through, uh, when you talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, what are we talking about? And the idea of Jesus in the Old Testament is, are we really talking about the same story? Is, is what Jesus came saying, you know, I'm the son of God, I've come to, to forgive you of your sins. Is that something that all of a sudden happened or has the entire Bible been about that? When we talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, I think the, the, the best way of understanding it is it's evidence in the Old Testament of promises fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. It's God telling us long before Jesus ever touches the face of this earth that there is going to be someone who will come who will forgive you of your sins through their death. And that's what we talk about when we're saying Jesus in the Old Testament is we're looking, okay, what are the evidences in the Old Testament of promises that God has fulfilled or that Jesus has fulfilled in the New Testament? Because the Bible really is the story of redemption or of our salvation over time, that as God's people kind of learn more and more about God, he reveals more and more of himself to his people. 
In fact, in Revelation 13, 8, which is at the end of your Bible, uh, it, it says the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That lamb slain, uh, we're talking about Jesus, but it's saying since the foundation of the world, meaning before any of creation was created, before any man ever touched the face of this earth, before sin had even existed, it was God's plan that the lamb would be slain, that Jesus would die on behalf of our sin. This was the intention of everything, was that the son would be glorified through his death and his resurrection. We would come to know God, we would come to be able to enter into his presence because of what Jesus has done. That's been the plan since the very beginning. And we'll look at kind of some of the Old Testament ideas where we can see the truthfulness of that. We can see God revealing himself in those things. But God does a lot of this through what we call covenants. And these covenants, it's kind of a technical term and a lot of you know, scholars will even disagree on, on what, we, what we define covenants as. I think O. Palmer Robertson, who you're all familiar with, of course, uh, he says that the, the best definition of, of a covenant is uh, bond and blood sovereignly administered, which I know that doesn't help anyone. What it means is that a, a covenant, these covenants that God is giving are promises that God is making with himself. It's essentially what we're talking about. It's a promise that God makes with himself. And the reason that is important is because we know God's promises are true. We know God's promises are perfect. And so when he promises something, he delivers it. And so when God promises or gives us these covenants saying that you will be saved through my son, or what we're going to see in this, uh, this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, we're seeing we know these promises will come true because the promise giver is perfect. Now then, we've gone through some covenants, or Ben has gone through some covenants. Um, he kind of is tricky in not telling you that they're covenants. But uh, the first one you saw was, was with Adam. And you remember in the Garden of Eden, after sin had happened, and, and, and Ben had talked about Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel that you see. Uh, it's this covenant that God has made where he says that God himself will perpetuate warfare with Satan and sin. At the moment that sin happens, he says, this is how we're going to deal with it. I am going to forever war against sin and Satan, and I am going to overcome those things on your behalf. That's the first covenant we see. The second covenant that Ben didn't talk about is the Noahic covenant. Noah, you're familiar with the flood. Um, And this covenant is that, that sin will be punished by just judgment. We don't like that one, not because we think it's unfair, but because we're bad. Uh, and we're like, oh, I don't like, ju- I don't like judgment. I don't like that part. Um, but that is what God is telling us through the Noahic covenant. And then the Abrahamic covenant uh, or the life of Abraham that Ben had just talked about. You see, uh, this promise as God's, uh, people start to grow. He says, okay, this is what it's going to look like. You are going to have a son. Um, and that son is going to lead down this lineage in which there will eventually be someone who will die for sin. And we'll look at that, 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 that incredible picture of that covenant. But that's what Ben had talked about uh, the past two weeks when we talked about initially God promising. And then after that, you see Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. And you see this, this promise that God has given through this covenant saying a sacrifice must be made to remedy the problem of sin. And so those are all the ones that we've looked at now. And now we'll look at the life of Moses and the covenant that he did. And of course, what we know about Moses, he did a lot of things. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you're familiar with the Exodus and the you let my people go and all that. And if you aren't, I believe it's on Netflix. So just go ahead and do it now. It's going to be more important than anything I say. Um, but no, what, what Moses is mostly known for, I mean, all that stuff is neat, but what mostly is, or Moses is mostly known for is ushering in the Ten Commandments in the law. 
on Mount Sinai, right? We know that, that Moses is the guy who brought those down to the people, and there's a, whole lot of, there's a lot of stuff going around that. But in fact, anytime you see Moses talked about in the New Testament, what they're not talking about is the delivery of people from slavery or anything like that. What it's talking about is the law specifically. They refer to it as Moses and the prophets, meaning the law and the prophets, meaning all of what is the Old Testament. And the reason this is important is because of what we see in the law. But the problem with the law, the problem that we have as Christians with the law, and the problem that many of you have, as well as myself, is that where the law is supposed to be something that points us to Christ, it points us to God. Instead, a lot of times it's a barrier that prevents us from fully understanding the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ has to offer to us. And it's because we misunderstand the law. It's because we don't correctly apply the law. And so when we look look at it and perhaps this isn't you, but I think for most people that I've talked to in the faith, they say, you know, it's just these, these laws are antiquated and they seem like they have nothing to do with anything. And it seems like God is just, is, you know, in the Old Testament, he's just this angry, wrathful God that gives all these rules. And that's not the intention of the law. And it's something we struggle with a lot. And so we want to talk about what is the proper intention? What is the way it's supposed to be used? What is it really doing? Because it is, it's supposed to be something that, that helps us. It's a tool for us to be pointed to the person of Christ. We'll see that the law drives us to Christ so much so and so important it is that it drives us to Christ that right before Jesus says what is the most famous verse in all of Western civilization in John 3.16, immediately before he says that, he's referencing a, a random story from Numbers 21. And so let's look at that story. Um, you start in Numbers 21, and what's happened up until this point in the nation of Israel's history, right? So they were once slaves in Egypt, and, and Moses comes, and he delivers them, and God delivers them out of Egypt into this wilderness. They cross the Red Sea, and they're in this wilderness now. And right before this, they're about to go into the land of Edom, this land that God has promised to them. But because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness, because they don't think they can do it, they get scared, and then they don't do it. And then, you know, this whole thing happens and they say, oh, we're not scared anymore. And God says, it's too late. You've already failed in that. You've already failed. So what happens is they have to go kind of around Edom and it's a long distance and they're in the desert and that's no fun. It says here in verse four of Numbers 21, they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. So they have to go around Edom because they were unfaithful. And of course, the Edom, if you remember the story of the spies going and looking at it, they say it's wild. There are grapes the size of your head there. So if anything, they're just mad because like that would have been cool and now we don't get to go there. But it says that they're impatient. And when it says they're impatient because of the journey, what's important to note there is they're impatient because of their own disobedience. They wouldn't have had to go on this roundabout journey if they were obedient to God or if they were faithful to what God had said. But because of their disobedience, now they're impatient. And that's the first kind of sin that we see the nation of Israel commit. You'll see in this next verse, all these other ones they have going on. It says um, that the people spoke against God and Moses saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. So they're already impatient because of their own disobedience. They're already kind of getting angry because, oh, we don't want to go this way. On top of it, Now they're speaking out against God and Moses. And you remember, God has delivered them from slavery. He's delivered them from the the grasp of Egypt. He's miraculously brought them through the Red Sea. And Moses has been the one that has been interceding on their behalf over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, they're ungrateful. All of a sudden, they're saying, you know what, God? You don't know what you're doing. Which is an absurd thing to suggest because of all that God has done for them. But no, they're saying, God, Moses, what are you guys doing? Did you bring us out here to die? What's going on? 
On top of that, they say, Uh, That they don't have any food and water, which is not true. If you're familiar with what's going on, God is miraculously raining manna, which is bread from heaven, that they get to go eat. And it's such an important thing. It's such a sign of God's mercy that later they'll take a piece and they'll keep it in the Ark of the Covenant to remember what God has done for them. On on top of that, one time they ask for water and Moses takes his rod and he strikes a rock and water starts flowing freely from it in which they drink. And that's important because we see in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul writes that that's actually a picture of who Christ is that as Christ is stricken, we get spiritual fulfillment and nourishment from him. So it's not just that they're, they're lying when they're saying there's no food and water. It's that they're getting food and water and they're getting them miraculously. And they're still saying, oh, we don't even have food and water. And you see how silly it is here because the last thing they say is, oh, and also this food that we do have is miserable and we loathe it. You're like, well, which one is it, guys? You're just, you don't even know what, you're just, you're just complaining to complain at this point. You're just mad. And we see this stuff and we kind of think, you know, it's, you know, it seems silly. It seems inconsequential. These people are just, you know, complaining against God and all kind of stuff. But uh, we understand with sin, what we, we know sin to be, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times we think of just sin as being those bad things that, you know, taboo, you can't talk about, you, you can't let anyone know you do them. But sin is beyond just that. Sin is in any way that we depart from who God is. So God has given us his will and he's told us how he wants us to live. And anytime we say, God, you know what? I know that you want that, but I don't. So I'm going to do my thing. And that's sin. And so in the same way that Israel's kind of doing all this nonsense where they're saying, we don't want that. We don't think that's any great. Or we, you don't know what you're doing, God. I think in a lot of times in our life, we, we just think of our sin as kind of whatever you're doing on Saturday nights. But instead, sin is more so than that. Sin is, is saying things like, you know what, God, I, I know that, that you want this for me. I know that I should be doing this, uh, but I don't want to. In fact, the things that you have given me, I don't care about. I want all these other things that you haven't given me. God, I don't desire the things that you desire. I don't want to do what you have called me to do. That's sin. That's us departing from God. And the problem with it, it might seem inconsequential, but the problem is is that God is the author and the giver of life. And when we depart from God, we're departing from life. We're we're saying, God, you are infinitely wise, you know what is best, and yet I don't want to be around you. This is the nation of Israel. They're saying, God, Moses, y'all don't know what you're doing. We're going to go our own way. And of course, we do that all of the time. And we'll see what happens here. says the next verse, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is fiery serpents. It's it's poisonous snakes is what's going on. In fact, if you go there today, there's still a lot of poisonous snakes in the area. Um, And what is important to see here is that where sin leads, judgment follows. That's the thing we understand is that, that when we sin against God, judgment happens. And that's not because God is angry and wrathful and wants to, to, you know, oh, I'm going to get you guys. Uh, It's because when we depart from God, we are departing from life. And so what God is doing is he's, he will see in a second, he's, he's revealing himself to them. He's, he's trying to get, uh, have them rely on him, have them learn from him. Um, 
Where sin leads, judgment follows. We see that this judgment is happening. And what happens is, I think for a lot of us, we might double down here and we'll say, oh God, that's not fair. That's not a fair thing to do. We don't like that. Um, But if you look at the, the response of the people of Israel, it's actually very noteworthy. It says here, so the people uh, came to Moses and they said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. See, the response is not to say, God, that's unfair. God, this is wrong of you to do. God, what, what are you doing? The response is to acknowledge their sin and to repent. They say, you know what? You are right, God. We have chosen to stray away from you, even though you are good, even though you have delivered us, even though you have done so much for us. We're wrong, and we come before you in repentance. You see in Psalm 51, this is right after David and Bathsheba, that story goes down, of course, it's wrong, and and this is repentant Psalm in Psalm 51, uh, verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And this is the nature of what true repentance looks like, is it's to suggest or it's to say, God, I in and of myself am wicked and I only commit rebellion and wickedness and hatred and all sorts of, you know, just terrible things. God, when I stray from you, I just get myself into trouble and I know I can't do it on my own. So God, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart because I know that my heart is deceitfully wicked. And we see God's mercy moves them to repentance and to prayer. A lot of people kind of will suggest that uh, the, the Christian faith is largely summed up in saying, love God and love people. And I think that's, it's not wrong, but it's probably not fully the point. It's probably better put when, when Jesus says in uh, Re- Revelation 3, he says, be zealous and repent. Yes, it's important to love God. Yes, it's important to love people. But loving God is not really in its fullness unless you understand the character of God and you're repenting because your character does not even begin to match up against who God is. It says, be zealous and repent. And that's what the people of Israel are doing. They're realizing their wickedness and they're repenting. And so the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. In my tedious studying, I learned that standard means pole. So it means that he puts on a pole. What happens here is God says, all right, here's the deal. These serpents are coming out. They're biting people. um, They're killing people. And so what you need to do is you need to take a bronze serpent. You need to cast a bronze serpent, and you need to put it on this pole, and you need to raise it. And what's going to happen is anyone who's bit by one of these serpents or one of these snakes, if they look to it, they'll be healed. And so you see here two things. One is that this is, uh, the purpose of this is to benefit them spiritually, right? This is evidence that God is not using this to condemn them. This is evidence that he is using it for their spiritual well-being. He's teaching them something here. He's revealing something about himself here that when you look to this, this symbol of your judgment, right? This bronze serpent that is causing all of this destruction in the nation of Israel. When you look to it in this kind of miraculous world uh, or this miraculous idea, if you look to it, you'll be healed. Meaning that if you look to your affliction there, you'll be healed of your affliction here. And it's kind of counterintuitive, right? When you get bit by a snake, you go to the hospital, you don't look to something. But that's what he's doing here. He's he's miraculously healing them by saying, if you look to this bronze serpent, you will be saved. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on the standard and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. 
And we see that this, is, uh, this bronze serpent is a representative of sin being removed from people, of their desire to stray away from God that's being punished now. When they look to this image, they are saved. And so anyone who looks to their affliction there will be healed of their affliction here. Now Moses, of course, he is in many ways kind of the, spoken of by people in the New Testament as being the, the bringer of the law, the bringer of the Ten Commandments and all of the many commandments that follow. And this is in the same way that this, this story we see this representative of, of our need to look outside of ourselves for salvation. That's what the law is doing. What the law is not doing, and this is the problem that we have with the law, what the law is not doing is it's not telling us how we get to heaven. The law is not put in place to say, all right, if you, if you do this well enough, then you'll be good enough. That's not the purpose of the law. The way we know that's not the purpose of the law, by the way, is because if you remember in, uh, when God made these promises to Abraham, who lived 430 years before Moses, he said to him, I am going to send someone who is going to save you. I'm going to send someone who is going to be punished uh, on your behalf so that your sin might be forgiven. And so the law coming 430 years later has nothing to do with salvation because that's already been taken care of. That's a promise that God's already given. This has nothing to do with that. No, the law is instead, uh, it's something that points us to Christ. It's something that reveals us, uh, Christ to us. What we understand in covenants is that as time progresses, we understand God better. And so what happens is initially God is revealing himself to Adam and Eve. It's just a couple people. And then it becomes a family with Abraham. So he reveals a little bit more. Now all of a sudden, Israel is an entire nation. And so God is revealing himself through the law. He's giving them the law because now that you're a nation, you need some kind of rules or else things are going to get way out of control. And what God is doing is he's revealing his character through the law. He's revealing his will through the law. He's saying, this is who I am. This is my perfection. This is my goodness. This is my holiness. We know that because in Leviticus uh, 11.44, God says in the law, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. He's saying, I, the Lord your God, am holy, consecrate yourselves or separate yourselves from the rest of the world and be holy because I am holy. And what that means is not the people of Israel know that they're not capable of being holy. He's saying, find yourself in me, be in me, in God, because I am holy and that holiness will extend to you. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5:48 to quote this although he slightly misquotes it and he does it on perfect or I mean on purpose he says be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect and he's saying that with the understanding that the people of Israel the people of us the people that are following God we are incapable of being perfect so he's not saying that you need to be better people you need to be perfect he's saying be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect meaning be found in your heavenly father if you're found in his perfection you will be made perfected by his blood by his death on the cross by his resurrection he's, he's of course talking to him about himself this is the sermon on the mount where he's kind of revealing his ministry but he's saying be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect And so the law is our confidence that we are imperfect. It doesn't take long to look at the law and and see, man, God's goodness and his holiness and his perfection, I fail to stack up against that. The law is our confidence that we are imperfect and that if we wish to be perfect, we're going to need someone to do it for us. People kind of say the law is like an x-ray in that it's not going to heal you, but it'll tell you what's wrong. 
And that means it's, it, it, it's this, the law is an external measurement of an internal problem, and that internal problem is sin. So now we no longer have to wonder, is this wrong or is this, we, we can just say, okay, yeah, we have it in written word. Yeah, that's wrong. Shouldn't be doing that. And so the law has been given to us to reveal the goodness of God, to reveal his perfection. That's why Christ says when he comes, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so it's, it's given to us so that we can know God, so that we can know his will. In fact, it's not something that we should hate. It's something that we should rejoice in because we see who God is through it. That's why David in Psalm 119, 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. And on your law, I meditate day and night because he, he reads it and he sees the character of God. Now then, all of this matters because when we look at John, John chapter 3, Jesus brings this up. He says here, no one has ascended into heaven. This is John 3, 13. Uh, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he's talking about himself here. He's saying that no one, no one, none of y'all can get up to heaven. It's not possible. Um, But I have come down from heaven as the Son of Man. Uh, It's kind of just his authority that he's speaking from here. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Right, we're familiar with that verse. That's one that uh, most people know. What most people don't know is that immediately before that, the pretext to that verse, he's talking about a story about Moses in the wilderness with a serpent. But here's what's going on here. First, when it says in in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So it says that he must be lifted up. He must be. It's required that he is lifted up. And the reason for that is because of this covenant that God has made. It's because of this promise that God has made with himself, saying, I am going to deliver my people from sin through my son, through a savior. It must be done because God keeps his promises. And so he's saying, as Moses has lifted up this serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up because this promise has already been given. It's required that God will do this because he's promised to himself that he's going to and he keeps his promises. It is necessary that Christ be crucified as a penalty of sin because God has promised salvation to anyone who believes in him. That sin needs to be paid and a promise has been previously given that it will be paid. The second thing to note there is the symbolism that Jesus is using. He's saying, just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. And what he's talking about there, he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about in the way that the the serpent was stabbed through with a pole and raised up, uh, so too the Son of Man must be stabbed through and hung on the cross to defeat this, this judgment that the people have kind of brought on themselves. And the beauty of that there is when you look at the, the um, Old Testament story, what you see is this thing that is like biting them, this thing that they're scared of, this, this thing that is the symbolism of their judgment. That's what is destroyed when they look to it. But with Jesus, Jesus is not sin in the way, he's not judgment in the way that those serpents were. Instead, Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
that he, talking about God, he made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Meaning, he who knew no sin, Jesus who was completely sinless, became sin so that we, the sinful, might be made righteous in God. And you have to understand the symbolism there. Of course, you know that the serpent in the the Old Testament, uh, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent is Satan slithering around, deceiving and, you know, condemning and doing all all this stuff to, to bring sin into mankind. And Jesus is identifying himself with the serpent in this story, meaning that in the same way that Satan is punished, in the same way that sin is punished, in the same way that God has promised since the beginning this eternal warfare, or I guess it's not eternal because he defeats it, uh, this warfare against sin and Satan himself, how it is defeated is through Christ becoming that sin for each and every one of us. And so he's saying, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too I must be lifted up for your salvation. That Christ bears the judgment on his own body on the cross, and that is the fulfillment of this promise that God has given us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see here that heaven was never a matter of keeping the law. It was never a matter of being good enough. He, he says simply that whoever believes in him, not whoever obeys him, not whoever does everything right, whoever believes in him. We talked a little bit about the story of, of uh, Abraham and Isaac that, that Ben had talked about last week. And it's this story of uh, the beautiful symbolism of, of Abraham bringing up his son onto this mountain to be crucified. And we see this similarly, uh, similarly here where, where, where Jesus, is saying, or not, uh, Jesus is saying that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. You see that, that similarity with Abraham. But the difference is where Abraham stopped, God did not. Where Abraham didn't kill his son, God went through with it. Because Jesus had to be penalized for us and our sin to be forgiven. Because we have sinned, God has planned since the beginning the foundations of the world. That his son would come, he would live a perfect life, keeping every letter of the law. He would bleed for our judgment, and he would resurrect for our life. That Jesus has done all this for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises in the Old Testament. The, the evidences of the, uh, of, in the Old Testament show us these promises that are fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus says in, in John three seventeen, continuing, he says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And that's kind of the problem we have. We have an issue with the judgment of God, but what he's saying is, I didn't send my son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved simply by believing 
in him. Simply by looking to the cross in the same way that the people of Israel, when they were dying, when they realized that their end had come, that their judgment had caught up with them, their sin had caught up with them, and simply they just looked to their affliction there for their affliction here to be healed. He's saying similarly, if just you realize that your sin has caught up with you, your judgment is coming, but you look to him crucified on the cross, you you look to your affliction there, your affliction here will be forgiven. You look to Jesus on the cross and you see that is my sin. That is my penalty paid on behalf of me so that I don't have to. So that I might come to know God. The law is not something that is supposed to hamper us or or prevent us from coming to know God. The law is something that is supposed to reveal to us the goodness of the character of Christ. The goodness of who he is. His mercy and his graciousness. In that in our great failure, God has saved us. The law drives us to Christ because it reveals in us our inadequacies, but it reveals to us God's love to forgive us of our inadequacies. And we realize that the things that we want, all these, all these ways that we are like Israel, we're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you're not giving me the things that I want. God, I want this, I want that. And the things that you're giving me, they're no good. And I, God, you have no clue what you're doing. What we realize is that the things that we want or the ways that we question God are not problems with God, they're problems with us. And we look at that and we see the character of God, we see the goodness of God, and we say, the problem is not with you, God, the problem is with me. Please, create in me a clean heart. Forgive me of my sins. What we can learn from this is we can see that if we can trust God since the very beginning of all of this, God has been promising salvation. God has been promising, listen, you guys are never going to be able to do it on your own. You're never going to be able to amount to anything. And so I'm going to send someone who is going to die so that you might come into perfection. You might come into a relationship with me. If we can trust God to, to deal with our biggest problem, the problem of sin, and to do so much to reveal to us who he is and his goodness, then we can trust God in everything. The ways in which we sin before God are because we don't trust God. The way Israel was sinning was because they didn't trust God. But we know that we can trust God because we see it. We see his goodness. We see his salvation. We see that all we have to do is look to the cross. And we'll be saved. Let's pray.